0: We're still looking at the fourth term of communion. The fourth term of communion states the following, that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, that the national covenant and the solemn league are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person, and in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 was agreeable to the word of God. We have looked at uh, the duty of social covenanting, In a previous study, we've considered the perpetual obligation of social covenanting. And then in another study, we looked at common uh, objections to the perpetual obligation of social covenanting. And now we're prepared this evening to begin looking at uh, the first of the covenants that is mentioned in this term of communion, the national covenant. And so we'll focus our attention upon this uh, this evening. The National Covenant of Scotland was subscribed in 1638, and it is the first of two covenants; the other being the Solemn League and Covenant, which are covenanted in Presbyterian forefathers subscribed during the glory of the Second Reformation. And I'm going to seek to give you a brief overview tonight, basically looking at three points. The three main points are the events leading up to the National Covenant, and then the events surrounding the National Covenant. And then finally an overview of the uh, content of the covenant itself. That latter point we'll probably just uh, uh, very superficially cover tonight, and uh, I want to spend uh, more detailed time uh, going through that next meeting. So let's consider the uh, first point. Uh, you can see from the outline that there will be a lot of history involved uh, in, our, in our lecture this evening. But I think it's very, very important to understand the historical context in which uh, these events occur. It also lets us see that God is sovereign, that he is a God of history, that he does work in history, even as he has worked uh, in history at that time. uh, So he is working in history at this time. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And so we can, I think, uh, derive and uh, draw much encouragement from the fact that God uh, is with his people. Very first point, uh, key events leading up to the National Covenant. Scotland had enjoyed a blessed time of reformation of church and state under the powerful ministry of men like John Knox, John Craig, and Andrew Melville. In order to better promote and advance the work of reformation in Scotland, against the harlot of popery and her illegitimate daughter prelacy, remember prelacy is ruled by hierarchical bishops appointed by which have been appointed by archbishops. In order to promote reformation for the truth against these errors various covenants were formed and sworn so as to bind as one man God's covenanted people in their promotion and defense of the truth against these heresies. Such covenants were sworn in many years, 1557, 1559, 1560, 1562, various covenants that were sworn by God's people in Scotland uh, in defense of the truth truth, and uh, to uh, stand against these errors. The original national covenant, also known as the King's Confession, in its original form, it was also known as the King's Confession. This was drafted by John Craig one of the Presbyterian chaplains of King James the Sixth of Scotland in the year 1580, uh, and then it was uh, it was subscribed by the king in 1580, and then by uh, people of all ranks in 1581. This is actually the precursor to the National Covenant of 1638. In fact, the King's Confession of 1580 comprises the entire first half or the first section of the National Covenant of 1638. In other words, they've just taken the, the King's Confession of 1580 and placed it and it becomes the first section in the National Covenant of 1638. James also, that's James sixth of Scotland, also enacted that all those who refused to subscribe this covenant were to be punished by the civil authorities, civil sanctions brought against those who did not subscribe this covenant of 1580 and 1581. Uh, it's noted that uh, throughout Scotland, everywhere, this covenant was subscribed by people of all ranks with great enthusiasm, of course, except by the pre- uh, prelates. Uh, they would not subscribe. Uh, if they did subscribe, it was uh, under false pretense. But uh, but by the people in general, uh, it was subscribed with great enthusiasm throughout all of Scotland. <coughs> Briefly, this national covenant, the original national covenant or the King's Confession of 1580, declares without going into a great deal of detail about it at this point, we're going to, as I said, next week spend uh, more detail going through the National Covenant of 1638, which, as I said, embodies this King's Confession in the first section. But just in real cr- quickly, so that you have an idea of what the King's Confession uh, addresses, uh, it declares, uh, first of all, the religion taught and defended by the Church of Scotland is the true Christian faith and religion. It doesn't proclaim uh, itself to be uh, something less than the true Christian faith. It proclaims itself uh, unapologetically as being the true Christian faith and religion. Secondly, it also declares, and this is a quote from the uh, King's Confession, we abhor and detest all contrary religion and doctrine. But chiefly all kind of papistry in general and particular heads, even as they are now damned and confuted by the Word of God and Kirk of Scotland. Uh, not uh, uh, very uh, uh, diplomatic terms. you would uh, use that, that kind of terminology. They were st- stating very clearly where they were coming from in this covenant. Uh, They abhor and detest all contrary religion and and, uh, doctrine. Uh, So there's not, uh, in this particular statement, there's not room for a a large breadth of tolerationism within the nation. Uh, The nation is devoted to understanding, believing the truth about God. And the ministers within those churches are bound to proclaim the true Reformed uh, religion. Uh, Another uh, point in summary about the National Covenant of 1580 is that it binds the subscribers to obedience to and defense of the doctrine and discipline of this true reformed Kirk of Scotland. So all of those who subscribe to it, they bind themselves to the doctrine, not not simply ministers, but all those who, who swore the covenant, subscribe the covenant, bind themselves to the doctrine and to the discipline or the the form of government of the true reformed Kirk of Scotland. And then finally it binds the subscribers to defend the king (coughs) and his authority with this qualification as long as he defends Christ, the true gospel, the liberties of Scotland as long as he administers justice and as long as he punishes the iniquities of the enemies of the Church of Scotland. Which would be again the same as the enemies of Jesus Christ, as the enemies of the Gospel. Since they already mentioned that they are uh, uh, defending, promoting the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it does call those who subscribe to defend the authority of the king of Scotland, which at this particular time would have been, uh, as I said, James the Sixth. But again, insofar as he defends the truth, when he becomes a public enemy of the truth, uh, this particular qualification would indicate that uh, his authority uh, is no longer one that they need to recognize as legitimate. This covenant in its original form was renewed again in 1590 and James the 6 was yet reigning at that time. <clears throat> continuing on, uh, still looking at the key events leading up to the national covenant uh, third point under that is that the general Assembly of the Church of Scotland meeting in Glasgow in fifteen eighty one now this is remember the this covenant was first subscribed in fifteen eighty by the king, then by all of the people of various ranks in fifteen eighty one then there was a, uh, a General Assembly of the Church of Scotland held in 1581 in Glasgow. And in this, in this uh, uh, General Assembly, they disposed of any ambiguity there might be in the original National Covenant of 1580 in regard to episcopacy. See, Episcopacy was not specifically mentioned by name in that covenant, the King's Confession or the original national covenant. It was not specifically mentioned by name. What's specifically mentioned by name is papistry, popery, uh, those types of terms re, uh, speaking to uh, to the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> but it also does speak of all of the hierarchical offices of of uh, the Romish Church as well, which again they understood to be applied to episcopacy as well, prelacy, because the same kind of government that was in Rome was being practiced uh, by the uh, uh, by the Church of England uh, by uh, in episcopacy, and so. This particular General Assembly meeting in 1581 made this particular, they declared this statement concerning that covenant so as to clarify what they were uh, promoting as far as the truth and what they were also uh, exposing as far as error. They said, and I quote, they meant wholly to condemn the estate of bishops as they are now in Scotland. End of quote. And so, not only is popery condemned by this particular uh, covenant, but also prelacy, episcopacy, as well. Now, I think this is very significant if you realize that in 1584, James the Sixth had basically broken his covenant that he had made in 1580 to defend and support Presbyterianism. In 1584, he had broken with Presbyterianism and he was maintaining the divine right of kings and particularly his divine right to govern the church as well as the kingdom, which is basically, again, Erastianism and a violent and flagrant violation of the National Covenant of fifteen eighty, which he had sworn to uphold. James did establish the church and state firmly under his control until his death in sixteen twenty five. The uh, fourth main point under key events leading up to the National Covenant. <coughs> During the reign of James the Sixth, the notorious Articles of Perth Perhaps you've seen these articles referred to in some of your reading. The Articles of Perth were adopted by the Compromised Church of Scotland in 1618. Now these are all events that are kind of preparing us for the 1638 National Covenant. The question put to the commissioners at this assembly in 1618 that was meeting in Perth was this. Receive the articles or disobey the king. Those were the choices that were put. That was the question that was put to the, to the commissioners at this particular assembly. Receive the articles of Perth, and I'll summarize them for you in just a moment, or disobey the king. Now, how would you like to be in that particular position, you know, right there in a body that's meeting and have that kind of pressure placed upon you. Well, these articles clearly brought Reformation in Scotland to a standstill, the Articles of Perth. They require the following in worship, in the worship of the Church of Scotland, kneeling when taking the Lord's Supper rather than being seated, as was the practice of the Church of Scotland in conformity with the Word of God. Secondly, the administration of the Lord's Supper and baptism in privacy was advocated and permitted rather than as had been up to that point in time in Presbyterianism that was established by Knox and John Craig and Melville that the sacraments always went together with the preaching of the Word. And so, therefore, they could not be administered privately. They must be administered in public worship. They were sacraments, and the Word of God, as it was preached, explained the sacraments. Otherwise, the sacraments become, without an explanation, without the preaching of the Word of God, they become superstitious. They just become uh, things that people uh, begin to uh, practice and do without understanding what they mean. And that's why uh, the Reformers emphasized that that the sacraments must not be administered privately. Thirdly, uh, the Articles of Perth established holy days on the part of the church calendar. uh, Particular days uh, like the advent of uh, Christ's coming, his birth. uh, Good Friday, uh, Easter, Ascension Day, Pentecost. All these various days were established and, and the uh, uh, ministers were required to observe these days in their churches. <clears throat> and so you see, all of these articles were concessions, again, to episcopacy, to uh, papistry, to popery, because that's where they originated. This was the last assembly, 1618. This was the last assembly of the Church of Scotland that was allowed to meet until 1638. So there were 20 years between that assembly, which was, again, a compromised assembly, uh, a pretended assembly, as the assembly said in 1638. It said that the things that were decided in that assembly in 1618 were null and void. They were a pretended assembly. They were not a lawfully constituted assembly. That's what was declared in the Acts of General Assembly in 1638, about the assembly in 1618. And so you see the trend. You started off with reformation uh, under these fiery preachers and mighty reformers, Knox, Craig, Melville. And now we see... Uh, how episcopacy, prelacy, Erastianism, this is bringing the Reformation to a halt. and it's now uh, not only brought it to a halt, but it's defecting uh, the, the nation is going backwards. <clears throat> the fifth point under key events leading up to the National Covenant, James the Sixth of Scotland, who came to the throne of England in 1603. Now, he was um, uh, the king of Scotland, uh, but he became also the king of not only Scotland, but of England and Ireland. So he became king of all three nations or kingdoms in 1603 upon the death of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth. And thereafter, he is called James I of England. At his death, that is, James I, at his death in 1625, his son, Charles I, acceded to the throne. And uh, uh, Charles I was uh, not any different than his father. Like his father, he was an Episcopalian and he ruled by divine right over the church. Maintained the same position in regard to those matters of what his authority was. The uh, sixth and final point under this uh, first main point. Here we introduce the villainous character of Archbishop Laud who became Charles I's associate in seeking to control and destroy Presbyterianism in Scotland. Loud's, um, his goal was quite the reverse of the Solemn League and Covenant. Uh, The Solemn League and Covenant and Archbishop Loud had this in common that they both wanted uniformity. Uh, Archbishop Loud wanted uniformity amongst the three kingdoms In Episcopalianism, the uh, Solemn League and Covenant uh, promotes Presbyterianism as that which would unite the three kingdoms. (coughs) They had that in uh, in, uh, in, uh, similarity, but but uh, a distinction was that, uh, according to Loud he wanted to bring Scotland into conformity to England, whereas the Solemn League and Covenant very specifically states that it was the goal to bring England into conformity to Scotland. So you see things are completely reversed here. (coughs) Loud uh, finished his... uh, his, uh, Prayer book of the Church of Scotland in 1636. And in substance, this uh, prayer book was the same as the prayer book of the Church of England. Uh, the prayer book of the Church of England, in this particular prayer book, uh, had various forms, like forms of prayer, various things throughout where uh, uh, the, the minister does not have. Uh, any uh, options uh, with regard to, to how to uh, uh, pray, with regard to how to order the service in any, in any way. Everything is basically laid out very, very strictly and rigidly. Now, in the Directory for Public Worship, which the Westminster Assembly uh, gave forth, the order of worship is laid out. In other words, the main elements of worship are laid out. But the specific things, for example, as to prayers, that type of thing is not specifically uh, given. And so there is liberty and freedom in that regard. <clears throat> Charles uh, I ordered every parish to purchase two copies of the prayer book or to face civil punishment. <clears throat> this prayer book was an imposition of Episcopalianism liturgy Um, upon the Church of Scotland. That was what they were seeking to do is to impose the Episcopalian liturgy upon the Church of Scotland. And again, just to summarize some of the things that are contained in this prayer book, uh, number one, the minister, uh, similar to uh, Romanism, uh, faces the altar with his back to the congregation. Uh, And again, that's a, that's a uh, very, very important distinction between uh, a reformed posture in worship where the minister faces the congregation and proclaims to them the word of God. And so in this particular case, it was, it was reversed. The uh, second thing that was contained in this uh, prayer book was the uh, a dipping of children in a baptismal font the dipping of children in a baptismal font. Rather than uh, applying the water uh, to the child, the child was placed into this uh, baptismal font. Thirdly, um, using Sunday instead of uh, using the word Sunday instead of the word Sabbath, uh, in the course of the worship as they spoke of the Lord's Day the, the in this prayer book it changed what in Presbyterian worship had been the use of the term Sabbath becomes Sunday. Fourthly was the uh, celebrating of uh, the various Holy Days as we have already alluded to in the articles of uh, Perth. And so the uh, same celebration of the various Holy Days was uh, Again, required in this uh, uh, book of prayer. Fifthly, making the sign of the cross upon a child's forehead when the child is baptized. Sixthly, kneeling position to receive the Lord's Supper. Seventhly, the consecrating prayer over the Lord's Supper. Spoke of the elements becoming the body and the blood of the Lord. They're moving in the direction, if if not actually there, uh, to uh, transubstantiation. Again, close affinity to Rome. And then uh, finally, the use of the Apocrypha in the worship service. Reading of the Apocrypha along with the scripture making no distinction between the Apocrypha and Scripture. These were the things that would have been required of ministers in the Church of Scotland. Now, against this abominable Popish liturgy, George Gillespie wrote his classic work on biblical worship entitled, A Dispute Against the English popish ceremonies intruded upon the Church of Scotland. He wrote that in 1637. That was the historical context in which he wrote that book. Those popish ceremonies, that liturgy that was being imposed upon the Church of Scotland. It's interesting that Gillespie, when he wrote that book, was not even yet ordained. He was a licentiate under the care of presbytery, but he was not yet ordained to the ministry. And yet, it is one of the classics on Reformed worship. Continuing on with the, uh, the goal of Archbishop Loud and what he was seeking to do here, on the Lord's Day, July the 23rd, 1637, Loud introduced his uh, prayer book into the worship in Scotland. Uh, his plan was to introduce it First of all, in the capital of Scotland, Edinburgh, thinking that there it would be well received. and You don't have these country bumpkins, and you know these are these are more uh, these are more likely to be people who have refinement, and they'll appreciate this, and they'll stand behind this uh, new uh, prayer book. <clears throat> uh, however, loud. Uh, seriously underestimated uh, the zeal for biblical worship among the Scots of Edinburgh. When the prelate, not uh, loud, but uh, one whom he had pointed, when the prelate uh, mounted the pulpit with the book of prayer in his hand, immediately a murmur was heard throughout the congregation. When he got into the pulpit and began to read from it, women began weeping, men began shouting to overwhelm the voice of the prelate as he was speaking. And Mrs. Main or Mine, I'm not sure how the the, the correct pronunciation, but let's go with Main, Mrs. Main, M-E-I-N, or Jenny Geddes, was first to take the stool upon which he was sitting and to hurl it at the rotund uh, prelate who was behind the pulpit. And others subsequently followed, throwing their stools, that's what they brought to, to sit on, started throwing their stools at this particular man who was reading from this book of prayer obviously disrupted that particular service. And what followed in subsequent weeks and months were several massive protests in cities against this, uh, this book of prayer. Uh, ultimately, it ended completely the aspirations of Loud and of King Charles to impose popish ceremonies into the Church of Scotland that was 1637 and remember the National Covenant is sworn subscribed in 1638 so that was probably immediately prior the most significant event that got the ball rolling now the second main point are key events surrounding the National Covenant first of all Due to the Erastian intrusions of Charles I into the affairs of the Church of Scotland and the desire to see the true Reformed religion reestablished, protected, defended by law, Alexander Henderson and Archibald Johnston of Warston were asked to prepare a covenant that would bind the people as one to defend the true Reformed religion and defend the lawful authority of the king as long as he defends the true Reformed religion. And so on Wednesday, February the twenty-eighth, 1638, the National Covenant was read, Greyfriars Church was read and subscribed Men and women alike signed the covenant. Some even signed it in their own blood, knowing that the wrath of the king might indeed require their blood. Within a few weeks, the vast majority of Scotland had signed the national covenant. It's interesting that Bishop Spotswood, a Scottish prelate, Mournfully declared at the enthusiastic signing of the National Covenant of 1638, and I quote, All which we have been attempting to build up during the last 30 years is now at once thrown down. And so, all that the popery, the prelacy, the erastianism, Episcopalianism, all that they have sought to establish for 30 years. In a relatively short period of time, comes tumbling down like the walls of Jericho. The third uh, main point under this, uh, or the third point under the second main point, <coughs> is that the national covenant was a term of communion in the Church of Scotland. Um, anyone who would uh, indicate that it was not as simply not familiar with the history uh, uh, very clearly the swearing taking of the national covenant was a term of communion the Presbytery of, uh, of Kirkcaldy resolved 1st of August 1639 that no quote willful non-covenanters would be admitted to the sacrament and that was not simply one Presbytery but that was of what was happening throughout the Church of Scotland? In fact, ministers who spurned the National Covenant were deposed uh, from their office as ministers. The <coughs> third main point uh, I mentioned at the outset is a brief overview of the content of the National Covenant, and uh, let me simply. Uh, give you a, uh, an overview tonight next time we meet I do want to go through it a little more carefully because there are there there, there are terms uh, in the Covenant which uh, some have asked what does that mean it's uh, in addressing certain errors found within Rome false teachings and things like that and I do want to clarify some of those things uh, so that there's no um, no puzzling uh, statements uh, in the uh, in the national covenant. And if I should next week, after having gone through it, if I should omit, bring your copy of the confession or the uh, national covenant. <clears throat> and if I should <clears throat> omit something that you don't understand, uh, we'll try and address that by way of question afterwards. <coughs> so a brief overview of the content of the national covenant. The first part of the National Covenant, as I have already indicated, is a repetition of the King's Confession of 1580-1581, wherein the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared to be that which is preached and practiced by the Church of Scotland. Now, I don't know if you have yours in hand, uh, uh, you can turn with me, but if not, just write down the page numbers um, that correspond uh, to um, the National Covenant is found in the, uh, this volume, the Westminster Confession of Faith, produced by the uh, Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. The King's Confession covers, begins on page 347 and goes through to the top of page 349. After the completion of the King's Covenant, there is the word, Amen. That's where the, the King's Covenant uh, ends. That's the part that they took directly from the National Covenant of 1580 of the, uh, the King's Confession. <coughs> and again, this section, just in brief overview, defends the truth. It exposes Romish errors. And there, there's a whole page of Romish errors, and we'll look at those uh, more next uh, time we meet. And then it concludes by, uh, by indicating that this king's confession is also uh, to, promote the, uh, uh, to promote and defend the lawful authority of the king and his defense of the truth. That's the first section. The second section of the National Covenant was drawn up by Archibald Johnston who uh, happened to by vocation be a very brilliant lawyer and uh, very familiar with all of the uh, the ancient laws. Uh, he was an elder, a ruling elder in the church of Scotland but also a brilliant lawyer. And uh, in this section that he was responsible for, he cites the many acts of Parliament that is the Parliament of Scotland the many acts of Parliament which demonstrate how the civil government had legally established the Presbyterian Church of Scotland and how by law laws of Parliament all contraveners of the true Reformed religion were to be prosecuted. It wasn't simply the Church it was by established law, by Parliament, that these things were were um, uh, were legally established. It also, in this section, uh, gives the oath that was to be taken by the king at his coronation. And so, the section, the second section, begins on page 349 with the word like, uh, like as. It's in large letters there, like as, just following the, uh, just above it, the Amen. So page 349, and this section goes uh, to page 352, uh, through the second paragraph on page 352. The third part of the National Covenant was written by Alexander Henderson, wherein he made application to the present times. That is, the present times being 1638. And so this was, uh, this begins on page 352 and goes through to the end of the uh, National Covenant, page 354. And it begins with, We noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons. And so this this uh, uh, would be the third section or part of the National Covenant, <clears throat> wherein the uh, application of that to more modern times, at least those times in which the... Uh, uh, these men were living in 1638. Um, that uh, is brought up to date. Uh, now, that's as much as I planned on uh, giving this evening. I uh, I will reserve, because I'd like to kind of keep it all in a package, I will reserve going through the um, National Covenant in, in a little more detail uh, next time we meet. And so that, I think, will... Uh, basically cover our, uh, our lecture for this evening. Are there any questions that, uh, that have come to your attention as, uh, as I've gone through the lecture this evening? <coughs> All right. Thank you for your attention.